0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues. But please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship. The title for this series is Violence in the Bible, from Joshua to Jesus. So this is part two of two. We did part... One, last week, Joshua and the Conquest, and that was an attempt to try to understand the violence we encounter in the scriptures within the broader scriptural um, cultural context. So, to try to be aware of the bigger picture of the ancient Near East and the bigger picture of the Bible is really important in trying to understand these parts of the Bible especially surrounding questions of genocide or the inspiration of scripture and especially the goodness of god um that's that's what i'm most concerned about so that's on the podcast if you want to hear that if you missed that and that's somewhat of a a preliminary lecture to this you don't need that for this but it, it certainly helps Next week, we're going to go from Joshua to Jesus to our own Joshua Chestnut, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) he's going to be lecturing on between the cross and resurrection, reflections on Jesus' death and our own. Do you want to say anything more? Uh, No, uh,
1: just come if you
0: want. Uh, (laughs) I'll be here. (laughs) So something on the meaning of Holy Saturday. What was going on? Uh, So I think that's a great follow-up to what I'm doing today, I think, but also in preparation for Lent and and Holy Saturday, which is uh, not too many weeks away. This week, of course, though, is um, part two of two. This is Jesus and the cross. So, what are we to make of the similarities and significant differences between Joshua in the conquest and Jesus and the cross. Uh, especially as it relates to the role of violence in the promised land um, and the meaning of conquest and battle and who is the enemy. This is very important uh, to keep in mind as we look at the differences here. But first, the similarities. Similarities are we've got the same name, the same place, and the same purpose. <laughs> uh, this is going to be the shorter part. Of, of the lecture, but this is, yeah, the same name. Jesus and Joshua are basically the same name. The Hebrew word for Joshua is Yehoshua, and the shorter version is Yeshua, or Yeshua. And when Joshua, the Hebrew word for Joshua, was translated into the Greek, it was Iesus, which we say as Jesus. So in other words, Jesus is just another way to say Joshua. If that makes sense. If you're following that. And Joshua, and therefore Jesus, means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. So that's why when the angel tells Mary, you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people and from their sins. So that's an important qualification. Hold on to that for, for later. But notice that he's going to save his people. That's in the meaning of the name Jesus. And where is he going to do this? <clears throat> he's going to do it in the same place that Joshua was doing the conquest. So this is the promised land, or originally the land of Canaan, the new Eden, as it's, as it's understood in the broader scriptures and as we call it now today, Israel, the land of Israel. Pretty close to what uh modern-day Israel is. So not only is it the same place, but they also, in a sense, Joshua and Jesus enter the land through the same place. So if you remember, Joshua takes the people of God into the land through what? The Jordan River, right? And so, of course, Jesus was born in in Israel, but... When he began his public ministry, where did he start? At the Jordan River, getting baptized, right, by John the Baptist. So Jesus entered uh, his ministry in the land, in the very same place, (laughs) the same river that Joshua entered the land. That's not by accident, I don't think. So same name, same place, and same purpose. They're serving the same purpose at different points in history, and uh, one more at the beginning, an initial stage, but more, and one more at the end of the fulfillment. But it's still the same overall purpose. So I mentioned last week, Genesis 12. This is really, as I said, this is the John 3.16 gospel of the Old Testament, in a nutshell. So this is when God said to Abraham... Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing. And those who curse you, I will curse, uh, and those who bless you, I will bless, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So this is pretty much what God is up to in the Old Testament. This is what's happening. This is what the conquest was even part of, even though it's harder to see that. Um, and what you see, if you keep reading Genesis in the next few chapters, this promise gets reiterated and expanded to Abraham and his seed, his offspring. And so that would, of course, be understood as this nation that God's promising to come out of Abraham. Um, that that word seed and offspring becomes a really important word. And of course, this is what God was doing in the Old Testament, but he didn't stop doing this in the New Testament. Actually, he completes this. He finishes, he, he fulfills this in, in a way, maybe in ways we don't, we weren't anticipating. That's surprising, but he's still sticking with the plan. And this is how Paul talks about it in relation to Jesus. So in Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He makes this interesting argument about the singular nature of this word. Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person. who was Christ. But then he says, it's also for you if you are in Christ too. You are that seed. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then finally, he says here, in in backing up a little bit to Galatians 3.14, Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So you see, Paul still has that in mind. The, The promises to Abraham, that's still in effect. God didn't abandon that when Jesus came. He fulfills that. So same purpose. And of course, to be blessed in the Bible is to be with God, of all things, and to walk in his ways in the land, on the earth. That's what it means to be blessed in the Bible. So back to Joshua, that meant preparing a place for God to come and dwell, and to share his ways with us, and for us to walk in them. But in order for God to come and for us to do that, evil must go. So before the coming of God, there's judgment. There's an encounter with evil, with idolatry, with wickedness. And of course, that's the first thing Joshua does in the land, is he comes to judge the the Canaanite people for the evil practices they were doing, up to and including child sacrifice. So these things must go. There's no room for that, for idolatry or that kind of wickedness in the land where God is going to dwell with his people. So there's got to be first this driving out, conquering, decisive victory over evil in the land. And this is the same thing you see also in the Gospels. There's initial judgment. Jesus comes, uh, Not necessarily even to to get ready for God, but as God, (laughs) Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. And he not only shows us the way of God, he is the way, as he says. But when that happens, when God comes, evil must go. And so with Jesus, there's also judgment that must take place, a driving out, a conquering over of evil. So, whoops, going too far. So John 12, verses 30 to 33. Jesus said, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death He was going to die. So just pay attention to all these different things that are now together. So like Joshua, we've got judgment. Now is the time for judgment. And then did you pick up the driving out language, which remember from last time, that's the more common term that's used. um, More so than the wipe out kind of language, the driving out kind of language. But here what's driven out is not normal human, uh, but the evil one, the prince of this world, that's talking about the devil. And the judgment here isn't just on the land of Canaan, but on um, the whole world. And this conquering is not with a sword, but with a death, his death on a cross. So a conquering that won't wipe everyone out, but rather will, in the end, draw all people to himself. You see now there's some surprises going on, (laughs) some differences. Um, So same name, same place, same purpose, but Jesus is greater in every way. He's the new Joshua and the greater Joshua, we're going to see. And I'm I'm working here with the logic of Hebrews. If you've read the book of Hebrews, the logic kind of goes like this. Great, but greater. So you got the prophets, they're pretty great, but Jesus is greater. You know, Moses, he was great, but Jesus is greater. Angels, pretty cool, but they don't have anything on Jesus. <laughs> that's kind of, if you read the book of Hebrews, that's, that's what's going on. And that's what I'm trying to say here. Um, Joshua was great. He is one of the, the few in the Old Testament where it actually says he did what God said to do. It's very rare (laughs) he's one of the few and so this is no diss on Joshua and I'm not trying to say he made a mistake in what he did in the Old Testament I tried to argue for that last week Um, I'm just saying that he's got nothing on Jesus (laughs) Jesus is greater in every way In, in scope he's greater in judgment and in mercy his uh his victory is is more encompassing. It's more surprising. It's the most wonderful thing the earth has ever seen. So yeah. He is certainly greater. And so that brings us to a word that's really important as we look at as I've been already alluding to and as we look at the the movement from the old to the new with Jesus. What's happening and what's happening is Fulfillment. And this is a a verse that really encapsulates this really well is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, Jesus was doing things and saying things that maybe made people think, This guy doesn't care about the Old Testament. Look what he's doing to the Sabbath. I mean, he must not care about the law of Moses. And so in response, he says, Do not think. (laughs) I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is a really important verse to keep in mind, and why it should show we should never unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Um, And yet, how should we view the Old Testament and what's gone on in the New? So the law and the prophets, that's a way of talking about, you could say, that if you want to refer to the Hebrew scriptures as a whole, the Old Testament, Uh, but it's certainly talking about the laws, or the books in the the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and also the prophets. But many times it's a a catch-all phrase for for the whole whole thing. So so Jesus says, "I'm I'm not doing away with those. What I'm doing is I'm fulfilling those. And what's important here is don't think of fulfill primarily as fulfilling predictions. That there was a thousand and one predictions in the Old Testament and and Jesus is fulfilling those. That's not primarily. There are some of those, but I think way fewer than has been understood. It's been more like he's been, he's going to bring to completion what was started in the Old Testament. He's going to bring it to its intended destination. That's how he fulfills. So think of the Old Testament like a big arrow pointing in a direction and Jesus is what is pointing at. If that makes sense. And I love N.T. Wright. He says what we do a lot of times, we're like, um, well, maybe this is a bit demeaning, but we're like a dog. When the master is pointing to something on the floor, like there's your toy. And the dog doesn't look at the toy, but looks at the finger of the master and you know, doesn't get where he's supposed to look. And that's what we do sometimes with the old Testament. <laughs> Instead, we need to look where it's pointing. Like Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness to me. They're talking about me. And it's our job kind of to figure out how, in what way. And it's not always straightforward. But in the Sermon on the Mount, I think what Jesus does here is he gives us some examples of how this works. How he's not abolishing but fulfilling the Old Testament. And especially with his greater righteousness. So, for example, uh, he said, you know, it says don't murder. And that's a good thing. He doesn't do away with that. He doesn't say, you know what? Forget the law about not murdering anymore. We're done with it. No. Hold on to that, of course. But take it further. Go to to the inside, to that unrighteous anger. That's the seed of murder. So let's, let's get rid of violence, outer violence in the community, but let's also get rid of the inner violence that we have. That's the seed of murder. And of course he does with this, this with other things. You shouldn't commit adultery. Again, he doesn't say away with adultery. We're beyond that. We're moderns. No. (laughs) Uh, we, we stick with that commandment, but we go further. We get, we cast out adultery, not just externally, but internally. We attack lust. That's the seed of adultery. Or well, this one I think is interesting. For you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So this is a violent command. This is a, from the Old Testament. If you were to really do this, it would be quite, uh, violent. <laughs> I think it's important to think right off the bat though, it's not necessarily bad. It's fair. It's it's violent, but it's not unjust. It's actually perfectly just. Eye for eye. You get exactly what you did right back to you. So Exodus chapter 24, the chapter right after the Ten Commandments, puts it this way. If there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Burn for burn. burn. Wound for wound. Bruise for bruise. <laughs> uh, quite extensive. Now, according to the books that I've read and the commentaries, it seems most scholars agree that this was also meant to prevent excessive punishment. So remember, last week I said it's important to, to figure out what's going on in the original context. Well, in the original context, there would have been excessive violence. And it would have been you took off my ear. I'm off your head. And so this commandment was a limiting command. It was bringing things back to at least fairness. Let's just keep it at least at eye for eye, tooth for tooth and no further. And by the time when Jesus is, is saying the Sermon on the Mount, actually they had cu- cut back on the physical penalties and they started imposing financial penalties. So you cut off my ear well, I'm not going to cut off your ear, but you're going to pay me a lot of money. Uh, kind of like what we would do today in suing somebody. Uh, but here what Jesus does is he uh, takes it even further. right? He, he says this, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So you see, even that, a further movement away, you had the, the over, um, too much vengeance, you know, a head for an ear. Well, let's keep it to. Uh, an ear for an ear. And now Jesus is saying, let's get rid of retribution altogether in this commandment. Um, so that when an evil person uh, strikes you on the cheek, which would have been one of the biggest insults uh, in in the ancient Near East, you offer them the other one. It would have been in your right to to slap them. But now Jesus is calling us to a greater Righteousness. Not that slapping somebody back would be wrong or evil, but he's calling us to a greater righteousness to lay down our life for other people, even enemies. This is enemy love. This is a new level of righteousness Jesus is teaching and, of course, exemplifying. So when it comes to, again, the law in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills, you've got to pay attention. It's not always straightforward. And it's not always the same for everything. Things have different twists and turns. And so for us tonight, though, it's about how does Jesus fulfill what Joshua was about and the Joshua conquest? How does he fulfill that? Because that actually was within the law. The command to do what Joshua did came within the law of Moses. So how does Jesus fulfill that? in the New Testament. That's my question, and that's something of what I'm going to offer you. So what we're going to see is, as Jesus is greater, we're going to see these significant differences. And we'll start with a different kind of driving out, which you've already seen something of, and we're going to look at a little more detail with a couple of stories in in the Gospels that really drive this home. So yeah, Joshua, he was commanded to drive out the Canaanites, and that's what he's described as doing, more so than wiping out language. And then last week we talked about the ethnic Canaanites and the literary Canaanites. So ethnic meaning the actual people, the actual Canaanites that live in the land of Canaan. Literary Canaanites are Canaanites are people who are like the Canaanites. So Adam and Eve would be literary Canaanites who were driven out of the land of Eden. Israel were literary Canaanites when they did the exact same things the Canaanites did up to sacrificing children, their own children. And then God drove them out of the land twice. So they were literary Canaanites. Who are the literary Canaanites in the Gospels? I think there's probably more than one answer to that. But I'm going to show you one very obvious one. And it wasn't the oppressive Romans, which is probably what a lot of people were expecting Jesus to do, was to drive them out. It wasn't people like the tax collectors and the sinners, who you might expect Jesus to drive out as well. It says that he many times drove out the demonic, demons, unclean spirits, over and over again. And that he gave his disciples to do the same thing. It's the exact same language from the Old Testament. In the New, but it's different. It's it's the mnemonic. And I think there's a lot to say about this, and I think for us in a secular age, it's hard to come to terms with this, and probably within this room, there's a lot of varying opinions on what that might mean or not mean. But you can't deny that this is what Jesus was doing. <laughs> in the Gospels, um, over and over again. He's driving out demons, and he's healing the sick. Driving out sickness. Jumping ahead um, on that theme, but let's stick with the demonic. Here's a passage from Matthew 8, just one example. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and healed all the sick. So what Jesus is doing is is he's now, I think, in this action, not only is is it a good thing to do, but he's also here redefining or refining for us who the enemy is and what the battle is. He's getting more precise uh, than Joshua did, maybe, or could at his time. And this is, I think, very apparent in the story of Jesus restoring the the Gerasene demoniac. And Joshua talked about this just a few weeks ago in our prayer meeting. And this brings us to the greater battle. Demons and drowning pigs. (laughs) And there's a few different versions of this story. The one with the most details is in Mark. Mark chapter chapter 5. And the story goes like this. There is this demon-possessed man, and He was out of control, of course, and, uh, in a really bad way. He roamed in these cave-like tombs and no one could subdue him. No one could, could bind him. If they put chains on them, on him, he would just break them off. And he would cut himself and cry out day and night. So no one could, could do anything with this guy. Except, of course, Jesus. (laughs) Uh, but what Jesus does initially is quite strange. As as Joshua pointed out, he asks this man, What's your name? And the response he got was, We are a legion, for we are many. Yikes. <laughs> it's kind of freaky. You know? I would certainly freak out if I heard that. Um, <laughs> but it gets stranger. The demons they know they're in trouble. Because they know who Jesus is. They're like, You are the Son of the Most High. And it seems they also knew what Jesus was doing in the land. He was driving out, casting out their kind. So they're, they know they're in trouble. So they they beg Jesus to send them into these nearby pigs. It says there's two thousand of them, two thousand pigs. What are two thousand pigs doing around a herd of pigs? That much so it seems a lot to me. And then, of all things, Jesus grants them the wish. Like, sure, I'm going to do this for you. <laughs> you guys get your wish. And then this herd of pigs rushes down this bank and then drowns in a lake. What's going on? <laughs> this is really bizarre, doesn't it? Uh, there's a lot of strange things in this. Now, it says the, the man ended up in his right mind, which is the most beautiful part of the whole story. Uh, but the people there, they're freaked out. And they begged Jesus to leave. (laughs) And maybe you could understand why. I mean, that would be a freaky thing. And then all our pigs, they've been killed. What are you doing? (laughs) Um, Well, it's a strange story to us. But if you knew your Old Testament, you might have got some of the meaning. And maybe maybe some of you uh, are getting some of the hints that are in the story. But first, the name. Of course, the name, it means many, it's legion, but that's, it's a military word. It means an army. So presumably there's this army of demons in this guy and enough to fill 2000 pigs. So I'm assuming there were, it was meant to mean there was 2000 in this army, a lot for one guy to hold. (laughs) No wonder he could break these chains, you know? Um, and so we have this huge army of demons entering pits, then drowning in the water. Well, when was the last time an army was drowned in the waters in Jewish history? Crossing. That's right, crossing the Red Sea. So just before the Jordan. Well, not just before, but the, the body of water before the Jordan. So it was when the, the enemy of Israel, the Egyptian army, was chasing Israel, and, and the, the sea was parted for Israel, but came down on the Egyptian army, and they were drowned. So Jesus, here again, is redefining, refining our definition of conquest and enemy, I think. So why the pigs? Well, for Jews, of course, the pigs were forbidden. They were forbidden to eat pigs. They were unclean. But eventually, the the pigs also came to symbolize the Roman Empire. That's how they talked about the Romans. It's pigs. They were... In a sense, the modern-day Egyptians, or modern-day even Canaanites for them. And so, of course, what the Messiah should do is cast them out, drive them out of the land. So take out the Romans. Um, and which, of course, Jesus could have easily done. If, if he could perform the miracles he did, he could surely work something up to, to cast out the Romans, to, to get them out. But he didn't. Instead, he drives out the demonic. So it appears that Jesus is saying, the unclean pigs are not unclean Gentile Romans, but rather unclean spirits. It might be that this is a creative way of putting into action what Paul wrote about in Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle, our battle, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against Egyptians. It's not against Canaanites. It's not against Romans or Nazis or terrorists. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I think he's trying to help us here reimagine where we should be attacking. <laughs> What's the enemy? What's the battle? I think our... Again, our secular imagination doesn't have a lot of room for this kind of thing. It can seem superstitious to us. Um, at most, we leave this for horror movies or something. But I think that leaves us as sitting ducks. And as C.S. Lewis put in the screw tape letters... Oh, there we go. C.S. Lewis <laughs> gets quoted again. But, uh yeah, the demonic, they're happy when we don't think about them enough or when we think about them too much. Uh but we at least gotta think about them. <laughs> and be aware of, of the evil forces at work, evil beings at work in culture. And sometimes that's not, it's not gonna look like a horror movie. Sometimes it's a lot more subtle. I think really that's a lot of what LeBri tries to do in cultural analysis. It's not just some neutral thing. But there's other things at work. Beyond the planning of people. People aren't planning how to mess up culture. Uh, but that happens. Things are at work, and and a lot of our job is to discern what is that. How do we recognize that? How do we resist that? How do we pray against that? How do we pray God cast that out of this land? Deliver us from evil. So, yeah, I think this is where I think this is the origin of where you hear, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. We've got that saying. I think that was more murky in the old testament. It was there to some degree. But in the New Testament, that gets more pronounced. That's where the battle of Jesus is more precise. He, he helps us see that. He helps us to see we're not fighting people. We're fighting the evil at work in, in life, in society, and in people's lives. We're attacking the evil, not the person. So yeah, Jesus didn't drive out people. He drove out the demonic. He drove out sickness. And here's one more story, just I think it's worth mentioning, based on last week's talk. And in this story, in Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman, it says, came from the vicinity to Jesus, crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And there's this part in the middle I'm not going to get into right now. I would love to, in the discussion, if you want to. It's a it's a difficult part, and there's really good things to say about it. But what's really important is the end, how it finishes. And what does Jesus say to her? Women, you, a Canaanite woman, have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus healing the daughter of a Canaanite woman in the Gospels. Someone going from the hit list to the home list uh, with Jesus. <clears throat> and so, yeah, and I think there's, there's only, I think, one, maybe two other times when Jesus says something like this to somebody. One other time is the centurion when he says, "Men, I've never seen any faith like this, in, even in Israel. And here he's saying, your faith, this faith is great. He's boasting about this faith of a Canaanite woman. I think that's not incidental. So, Jesus, he drives out the demonic. He drives out sickness from the land and from people's lives, wherever he goes. And of course, eventually out of his cross and resurrection, he drives out sin and guilt and eventually death from the land. That's his kind of conquest. That's his kind of victory. And of course, there were Hints of this in the Old Testament. There was It was a movement towards this. This is where God was going. But with Jesus, we've arrived. And for with Jesus, it's not just for Israel, and it's not just for the land of Israel, but it's, what we see as the New Testament goes on and on, for all people, and the whole world. For Israel, and for Canaanites, and Americans, and whatever... Else, other nationalities are here or all over the world so Jesus is greater in all kinds of ways and we're going to see his sword is greater too but first just a little excursion which will be an important excursion in my view in a broken world and in lots of I know this is a debated topic but I believe there's still a place for the literal sword in in this broken world, that there's still a place for police and military. Uh, That would fall under what Paul would call the authorities. And so here's one of my reasons for referring to that, at least from the scriptures. This is Romans chapter 13. This is what Paul says. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For us, this would be the government. I don't think Paul is saying, whatever the government does, therefore, is good and true and uh, unquestionable. The governing authorities will be brought to account as well. Uh, but it's interesting what he says here. Those who rebel are rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. It's hard to believe sometimes, I know. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So here's Paul, he knows Jesus, he knows the way of Jesus, the cruciform life, and he's not saying, all right everybody, let's round up and say, government, put your sword away. No more. That's not what he's calling for here. He's saying they don't bear it for no reason. He's saying there's a legitimate place there, I think, in, in my reading. And then he goes so far as to say, yeah, they're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So... The church is one servant of God and we're entrusted with the gospel. And the government is another servant of God and they're entrusted with the sword, among other things. And at one time, for example, during the time of Joshua, God entrusted the sword to the people of God. Uh, And he enforced his judgment and wrath, say on the land of Canaan, through them. That's what we see. It was something like they were You could imagine maybe something like God's police force taking out corrupt mafia families who've been corrupting the land for 400 years. But eventually then, of course, Israel becomes the new mafia over time, so God has to drive them out of the land with the sword of other nations, the Assyrian sword and then the Babylonian sword. And from that moment on, it it looks like, if you read the story, like God takes the sword out of the hand of the people of God, and puts it into the governing authorities of where they're living. So that, at that point, Israel had to go and submit to the authorities of the Babylonians. And then eventually, in the day of Jesus, they were submitting to the government of the Romans, the Roman authorities. And so, <clears throat> what's happened then, um, when we, as the people of God, as a whole, have picked up the sword in the name of christ for example in the crusades when that has happened we've done something wrong i think is apparent and then our witness for christ is lost for centuries including up to this very day so it's i think when those two servants are confused and their different roles that's when we get into trouble if you look at at the history of the church So the government bears the sword to fight physical evil and the church bears another sword, the word of God, to fight the root of evil, sin. Different weapons for different targets, so to speak. But I would also want to argue that this does not mean that an individual Christian can't be, say, in the military, the police force. So if you read the Gospels, not one of the centurions that's mentioned... Even the ones who express faith are ever asked to leave their profession. Not one, I know of. So I think we need Christians in the military and the, and the police force to promote true justice. There's a lot of corruption there. And when appropriate, to promote maybe even mercy or nonviolent means, if it would be appropriate, if possible. But maybe one of their roles could be something like what the Old Testament was doing, in the ancient Near East. At the very least, let's limit it to eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So, for example, in war, if, if one country bombs uh, another country and kills 100 people, you don't come back and kill a 1,000 in theirs, which is what happens a lot of the time. Maybe at the very least, we can say, let's at least try to promote eye for eye kind of thing. And even if possible, let's go further. Let's kind of learn from how the Bible was doing it Let's see if we can promote even more nonviolent creative means to to resolve these conflicts. So I think we need Christians doing that kind of thing. What the scripture, what God's been doing throughout history, we need Christians doing that in, in the military and in the police force. Uh, that's my conviction. I know we can talk about that later. But I think uh, what we need to see is that the church has been given a new sword to fight with, and to conquer with, so to speak. And that would be the the greater sword of Jesus. And this has beginnings, actually, in the Old Testament. This is anticipated. So we can read this in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 4. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit, With the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. That's in the Old Testament. Isn't this Jesus in the Gospels? I think. Note in particular, again, that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Not a sword, not a spear, with the rod of his mouth, slaying the, slaying with the breath of his lips another way of talking about his words you have to breathe to speak and this image is picked up in the book of Revelation which is I think a really important thing to pay attention to to, as an interpretive key for the whole book one of the interpretive keys so here this is talking about Jesus this is Revelation chapter 1 verses 16 this overwhelming (laughs) image of Jesus at the very beginning And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Or this is Revelation chapter two. This is when he's talking to one of the churches. He says, "Repent, therefore; otherwise, I will come soon to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth." And then later on in Revelation chapter nineteen, fifteen, it says this, and a and a very and a scene that's filled with battle imagery. But what's the main uh, weapon of Jesus? Here it is. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's quoting Isaiah, what we just read at the very end. So he's equating the rod with the sword, if you see that with which he's going to strike down the nations. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus is conquering through the word of his mouth. He's, he isn't talking with a literal sword, but the sword, the word of his mouth, what he says. Again, this is a big interpretive key. This is really helpful. Not that I can go fully into Revelation tonight, but that's something to keep in mind as you read this, this book. And that's important to also keep in mind when we think about the the final judgment. I think a lot of times you see in the book of Revelation imagery from the Old Testament. And as I said last time, that was the New Testament says these things happen as an example as to what is to come. So we use the Old Testament to inform us about something like, say, the final judgment. But I don't think we have let the Gospels inform us as much about the final judgment how was Jesus using the sword of his mouth when he was walking through the land of Egypt, or uh, not the land of Egypt, the land of Israel? How is he doing that? And how might that and how should that maybe inform us on the final judgment? I don't have a full answer for that, but I think that's, that's something to consider. <clears throat> but going back to how, how did this look, maybe, in the Old Testament or in the Gospels, Again, this is the passage I quoted earlier, Matthew 8, 6. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. The rod of his mouth, the double-edged sword. (laughs) He says, go, you gotta go. His word is is mighty and powerful. I think what we even see in the New Testament is him holding back the power of his word so we wouldn't get too caught up in the power of... And we could see more of his love in action, that that's what he was about. But I don't think we have any sense of the power of word, his word that created the worlds, and all things hold together by the power of his word. We have no clue. I love that scene when, when they come to Jesus up in the garden and he says something like, "I am," And they just go, Poof, <laughs> they all fall down. Well, I think that was like a glimmer of the power of his word. So, he drives out with, with the word of his mouth the demonic. He drives out sickness with the word of his mouth. And also in his teachings, I think he, he's driving out doubt and sin from human hearts. We see in the Gospels. And that his words, they can be like a double-edged sword, cutting right to the heart. Sometimes that's painful at first why so like the rich young ruler. he really heard Jesus. Jesus went right to the idolatry of his heart, right to the thing that he loved most. And he went away sad. But I think that's because he really heard Jesus. So I have hope for that guy. <laughs> I've hope that around the corner, some point, he was like, well, that hurt. But he was spot on. And he went back. Um, that's my bet. <laughs> But I find that many times the the words of Jesus, at first, when we first hear them, at least they were for me, they slayed me. They cut me right to the heart. They convicted me of sin. And that wasn't nice. It wasn't pleasant. But it was good, in the end. And it was like a surgeon cutting out the cancer of the heart. And that's what he does with his words. That's one way he conquers. That's one way he drives out the Canaanite within each of us, so to speak. And that's, that's our job, to follow him in that way. So this is one of the ways, yes, we are to conquer. So you see this kind of language in Revelation about the conquerors, the Christians who are overcoming, the overcoming ones, but actually it's a stronger military language. It's conquering, just like what Joshua was doing in the conquest. But how do they conquer? not with literal swords, but by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. He's writing to Christians who weren't killing people, but who were getting killed, receiving violence. And so these these Christian conquerors in Revelation, yes, it's not literal swords, it's those who, it says, keep the commandments of God, who keep the testimony of Jesus. That's the Word of God. It's uh, we, we conquer, not by becoming Bible thumpers <laughs> and hitting people <laughs> with the Bible in the land, but by, of course, trusting and obeying the Word, praying and proclaiming the Word in the land, and, of course, all humility and gentleness and sensitivity and boldness and all kinds of other things. And it's also where we learn to turn from the way of the beast, which is primarily a violent way, to the way of the lamb, which is a cruciform way, a way that you suffer for others, even to the point of death sometimes. Which, of course, brings us to Jesus and the cross. So... Je- or Joshua, he conquers in the land at his time, in it, which was appropriate for him, by imposing violence on people. Jesus and his followers conquer in the land by receiving violence from others at times. That's a big shift. Something to, to pay attention to. So back in Revelation, back to Revelation, I mean, another interpretive key for the book. Told this in chapter five. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Of course they're thinking conquering here, that's why it has conquered the, the lion, this is a conquering animal, consuming animal. It's got fangs to kill. And what I saw was a lamb standing.
2: Yeah.
0: behold the lion I saw a lamb slain yeah that's shocking the lion conquers as a slain lamb that is surprising that is surprising that should grab us that should shock us that's an interpretive key the book of Revelation. That's an interpretive key for us in what it means to conquer. So if we're going to be trusting, obeying this book, this sword, this sword leads us to the way of the Lamb. That's a cruciform life, a cruciform way. So the ultimate victory of God is not when he imposed violence on others, which he does and did at times, in appropriate ways. But the ultimate victory of God is when He received violence on the cross in His Son. That's His ultimate victory. And of course, one that went beyond just the physical, <clears throat> but a death that was for Israel and for Canaanites. And of course, we're all Canaanites. We, we all deserve to be cast out, driven out, wiped out. And that's what God does for us in Jesus. His death was for us on our behalf. Paul said, one died for all, therefore all died. Jesus is the second Adam. He's our new representative, so we can count his death as our death. And what happened there for us on our behalf. So in him, the death of the sinner, the death of the Canaanite, the death of the old self has happened. And in that resurrection of his is our new self coming forth. Romans 6. We know that our old self, the old Canaanite, was crucified with him. The death he died, he died to sin. But the life he lived, he lives, he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We said that over Michael in in his baptism. (laughs) So in Christ, we've received the judgment of the conquest, so to speak. In him, we've received also the gift of the conquest. Life with God. In the promised land, which is now any land, anywhere, including this one here tonight, in this room. That's a greater kindness than anything you see in the Book of Joshua. And there's also, of course, a greater severity. Right. So to be outside of Christ, to reject Christ, is to reject this kindness. Uh, to risk any an eternal exclusion driving out. That's, of course, I think worse than any physical violence you see in the Old Testament. That's more severe. So note again the kindness and the severity of God I mentioned last week, but even more so. But note especially the kindness, of course. If if the scales are tipped in any direction, (laughs) I think it's in the kindness direction. So that... The word of God drives out the inner Canaanite in us without driving us out. Right? God designed a way to give us the judgment of the conquest that we deserve and to give us the gift of the conquest we don't deserve. That's what the new and greater Joshua does for us. That's what I have prepared for tonight. There are, yeah are plenty of things to discuss, plenty of things I didn't talk about uh, that we could talk about. But this is time for you to to raise the questions you have, maybe uh, things you want to debate more or clarify or share. So with that... Does
3: anybody have a question? Ben. About the language of driving out, and that was a really interesting um, connection there for me between sort of driving out the Canaanites of the Promised Land and Jesus driving out the demonic from from the Is there any um, has anyone written on the, the language around Jesus driving out the uh, money changers in the temple, <coughs> thing a parallel to that, or, or I don't
0: yeah, know. I haven't, I don't remember, probably, but uh, I was just looking at that yesterday, I think, and thinking the same thing, just wondering what. What might be, yeah, what might he be saying there in that? That's as close as Jesus gets to being violent, I guess. (laughs) Or actual violence, yeah. It seems to
3: be very much a physical act, but also a very symbolic act as well. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yep. He's cleaning house, for sure. It's interesting. He
4: does.
5: in that context, he also doesn't words. He said he, his words are there interpreting what he's doing. He yeah. Made my father's house a den of thieves. You know, it was meant to be for the Gentiles. And yep. Just the words, the sort of the of the mouth, accompany. The
0: yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember hearing somebody say, "Yeah, he's," I mean, thinking of the temple. Um, I mean, it's used in all kinds of ways, of course, um, but he being the temple and we being the temple with him, I mean, he's hes cleaning out, he's driving out what shouldn't be in the temple, <laughs> which is now us um, in our lives. So, yep. Joshua. Uh, yeah, thank,
1: thank you for this. Um, uh, just curious to hear any more thoughts on uh, yeah, it is, it is something that I, I don't totally have my thoughts straight on, but there is such an emphasis in Jesus' ministry on uh, driving out the demonic, uh, especially in the synoptic. I mean, it's also in John 2, believe. but then it doesn't seem to be as much in Paul, and then also even thinking about the way the church in the West, at least, I just it's the only church I've ever really known, uh... It, it, yeah, I'm just curious how you see something that's so central in the life and work of Jesus, and that you've made this very helpful uh, connection to sort of uh, the work of God in the Old Testament as well. But, Yeah, what does that look like for the church, uh, for Christians? Yeah. Um, for Christians. And just any anything. Not a, yeah, no pressure for like any yeah. word or I'm just curious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, I don't know if I have a good a good explanation as to why it's so prominent in Jesus, that driving out exorcism kind of activity versus what you see in the pastoral letters from Paul and other other letters. Uh, I I do think uh, what he does say in Ephesians is pretty close. It's as Close as you're going to get, maybe, to that kind of understanding. So we we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And there's a guy, um, yeah. The book. Um, what did I give you on Ephesians? Tim Combus. Yeah, Tim Combs. Yeah, What's it? Um, um, the title. Drama of Ephesians. The drama of Ephesians. Yeah, he's. Uh, I think he has a good sense of how this could look in and what I was trying to allude to earlier. And looking at. So he he highlights like big corporations. It's like big corporations end up sometimes doing terrible things, say uh, to other countries in the way they do business or or to the environment. But that's beyond what anybody was planning to do. I mean, certainly there was certain acts that were irresponsible or not thoughtful, not engaged that we could look to and. Um, But it seemed like the the evil that came out of this was beyond what was going on with these people and that maybe a principality or something is at work in this beyond them. That's maybe what Ephesians might be alluding to. um, That we need to recognize and not blame too much on a corporation. (laughs) Not to let them off the hook or something and say, the devil made me do it kind of thing. But um, to recognize there's more at work in the things that go wrong, then people's individual actions. Um, so don't put too much on the people, even though we need to call them to account and do what do their part. Um, so I think at least there, in, in how we look at people, that should be an aspect. But also I think it means we should pray, deliver us from evil way more, <laughs> and say, man, that, that's a significant prayer. And if we don't do that, how much more evil will be present. And maybe maybe there's a whole lot of evil that's not here in people's lives because we've been praying that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think, too, like there's times, it seems to me, in the Christians I've met, there's times when there's like real, direct, get out of here, whatever this is, in the name of Jesus, kind of language that needs to happen. And then there's other times when it's more of a, a discerning, hey, we're seeing what's happening, resisting kind of work. It's not maybe that kind, of, uh, that kind of prayer that's going on, but it's another kind of engagement. It's more long-term, maybe more subtle. So I wonder if maybe even what we see with Jesus is some of the more dramatic things that can happen, and in the pastoral le- letters, more the, the subtle ways that evil can work in our lives that we need to, to deal with. In, in maybe less dramatic ways. Uh, that's my sense, but let, yeah, others maybe.
6: Oh, in the site, it says all people and whole world, right? So some say chosen, right? Chosen people, but like my my sheep knows my voice, right? Yeah. And how did you explain? Was it really whole world? Was it just for certain people? Maybe it's outside of topic of your talking, but it's a
0: little bit stood out to me. Yeah, well, I would say there's... (coughs) Jesus' purposes are for all people. All peoples, period, and all people. Mm -hmm. Um, But who actually hears the call and responds is another thing. So that doesn't mean... I'm not trying to say universalism, if that's what you were hearing. That's not... I think the desire of Jesus is for all. It says, you know, God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, but that doesn't mean all will, all will respond. Uh, he might be calling to all, but he might not, not, not all might respond to the call.
7: Yeah, even that passage you had up there where Jesus says, um, you know, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men. I think the sign something all people myself yep. he's, he's obviously not saying every single person will be saved but his arms are spread as wide as they can be spread to the whole world
0: yeah Yep. <clears throat> yeah and that, I mean otherwise if there's those passages that say all and I could see some people saying well look that's a call to universalism but I think that would have to ignore the warnings Jesus gives and other New Testament writers as to the the danger of rejecting, of turning away. Uh, so I, that's why I can't affirm universalism. I would have to ignore a whole lot of warnings in the New Testament that seem to indicate something else. I don't know if that's is that. Yeah.
4: Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering. In light of what Jesus said about turning the other cheek and not resisting an evil person, does that mean that there's no place for justice? that we can't pursue justice in any way? Um, prisons, and police, and the courts, and everything, is that all supposed to vanish? which we said, not to resist an evil person.
0: No, I would hope not. Yeah, we need, uh, I, I would not call for getting rid of the justice system. I think that's is spoken. I think that's to be lived out on an individual level, and I don't think justice is wrong. But I think what Jesus is calling us there to is a greater righteousness, a higher calling, if we're going to bear witness to Him and His way. But that's not necessarily. I don't think we should impose all Christian ethics onto people who aren't Christians mm-hmm. or to the government that's not not ready for that kind of thing. Um, but I do think. If we can promote more nonviolent, creative ways to deal with things, we should look for that and do that. And so, if you if you do just stick to strict justice all the time in every situation, all the way through, no one's left standing. <laughs> so, at some point, you usually do need to step in and say, "All right, who's willing to turn the other cheek? Who's willing to take something of this and and stop this cycle?" Because uh, um, but that's a big call. So I think it's good to recognize we're actually asking somebody to sacrifice something to do that, that it's not just normal and expected and an easy thing to do, but it's actually a real radical thing we're asking, but it could be a really good thing. So look, One, two, three.
8: Yeah. So I love that change. It, um, yeah, it's not
9: talking about you know
0: someone who tries to kill you. Yeah, exactly. Or you're in an abusive marriage, and that doesn't mean a wife should stay there and and take it or something. But that's different, I think. I think what it's speaking to is vengeance. I think it's this this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I'm going to get even. I don't think it means self def- like get rid of self defense or run when you're in danger. I mean, even Jesus and Paul took off at different points when, when things were getting rough and bad. It wasn't, you know, just, it's not my time. I'm not just going to get take a beating just to get a beating. But I'm also not going to enact, I'm not going to live for exact justice with everybody. I think that's the heart of what I see at that. You hit me, well, I'm going to come back at you with enemy love. But that might mean I might run away first and get some protection. But, you know, uh, I don't know if that, yeah,
2: speaks to that. One, and then two. I was thinking, I may, I may have this wrong, but I think there's a, an example in the Scriptures where Jesus didn't strictly follow that himself. When he was on under trial, I believe, he, he answered the high priest, and somebody struck him. He didn't he didn't seem to just literally turn the other cheek. He said, why do you strike me? If, I, if I've answered wrongly, bear justice of the wrong, but otherwise, why do you strike me?
0: Yeah, well, and then I think exactly. He's given an example of what turning the other cheek means, which I would assume. There's an example. It wasn't like he was saying, Alright, hit my other side because you just got one side. <laughs> it was he didn't come back. I mean, what could have Jesus have done to he that didn't guy? It
2: love, but my point yeah. is he doesn't do the, the
0: literal, simplistic understanding of turn the other cheek and say, please hit me again. Exactly. I mean he what did he do? He offered him a question. Mm-hmm. What did I do wrong? That was a loving, non retaliatory thing. But it was also it wasn't weak, it wasn't timid, it wasn't just becoming a doormat. So I think he gives us the example there of what turning the cheek, which you're saying, is not meant to be a literal thing, but uh, in my mind does illustrate. He's not no, going for a vengeance. I agree with
2: you, but, yeah. it, but it's, not the simplistic, lit, it's not the simplistic literal understanding of when you first hear it in the, in the Beatitudes.
4: Yeah.
0: I think I'm agreeing. <laughs> we got... Uh, comment here and then Anna and I pick us saw over here
10: um, <clears throat> I think of uh, Micah 6 8 uh, do justice but love mercy so mm. justice needs to be done and it will be done in the end uh, yes. justice but, but mercy triumphs over so yes. justice yeah. love, love do justice but love mercy yeah mm.
0: yep mm-hmm. and justice isn't wrong I think it's good to start there justice isn't like mm-hmm. bad or uh or sinful, justice is a good thing, <laughs> but mercy is better. Yeah. If we can get mercy, let's let's go there as much as we can. I want I want mercy. <laughs> I want to promote mercy, and those who give mercy will receive mercy. So you're better in the mercy realm. <laughs> but uh, but God is not wrong to give justice ever. That's not a, a bad thing for Him to do. But He wants more too. So Anna,
7: I just wanted to tell a strange story, if I may. Um, I, I'm not saying necessarily this is the best thing to do, but it's a really great story in my family of origin. Um, when I was about five, I was brutally attacked by a dog. I was almost killed by this dog, and um, very easily could have died. And my parents were uh, felt very much like they were the only Christians in our whole neighborhood. It was a neighbor's dog who would attacked me. You know, it wasn't my fault in any way. The neighbor said this dog was safe, so on and so forth. A lot of the other neighbors kept telling my parents they should sue this family. Mm -hmm. And they had every right to, according to the law, it would have been perfectly okay for them to at least press charges, so to speak, and get the dog put down. Um, But my parents were so convinced that they needed to show mercy I mean, of course, you can imagine as a parent, they were horrified, they were scared for me. Once they knew I was okay, um, they just felt like, God wants us to not sue this family, not press charges, but let's just pray. This dog is dangerous, let's pray that the dog dies. And so, as a family, we prayed that this dog would die. (laughs) And it was a healthy dog, a young dog, a huge, huge dog. And within a week, this dog dropped dead of a heart attack. Oh my
9: gosh.
7: And it was so strange. The whole neighborhood thought it was so strange. Our family had like a whole huge <laughs> celebration. <laughs> I'm not saying that it isn't a, a strange thing and a bit of a bizarre story, but it was, my parents were just really trying to not do the eye for eye thing and not do what would have been justice, but just pray for God to work it out without them having to do anything. And as a little kid, you know, it also made a huge impression on me that, um, you know, that I don't have to, like, press press the law to make sure I get justice, but there are things that I can eat in God's hands. I'm not saying he'll just kill all of <laughs> you, but um, it's a dog, so it's a little different. There's my no strange story. <laughs>
0: Marty, did you have something to
5: then? Well, I'm I, yes, I really glad it worked out that way. But, but thinking, I'm thinking of the dog. One, I'm just thinking of another scenario one where one could not take vengeance on the family, but just this dog could kill another child. Yes. You know, so yeah. the dog really needs to be put down. Yeah. Anyway, that's It was I'm, put down. It was put down. I know. Before it killed another child. That's good. I warned you it was a strange. Yeah, story. it was a strange story. <laughs> That's okay, but went, God heard your prayers. I was just thinking of an example where Paul um, um, stuck up for his rights as a Roman citizen because he had he had been beaten up and thrown in prison without a trial. And and then when the when the Romans found out he's a Roman citizen, that way I mean they being a Roman citizen made it Real difference in Rome. Mm-hmm. And you had you had rights, and you could not just be beaten up and thrown in prison without without a trial. And they just wanted to let him go quietly and not have anyone know about it. And he insisted, "No, mm-hmm. you're 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 taking me out of prison in public and basically apologizing." He, he wanted he was basically wanting the law, Roman law, to be publicly upheld in their acknowledgment that they had had disobeyed their own law in mm-hmm. mistreating him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you how that fits in, but I, I think you're right What you said it's the, the the eye for an eye, to, uh, the um, turn the other mm-hmm. cheek thing. I think the context isn't, isn't it where Jesus said, you have heard it said of old, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So he is really speaking against personal retaliation. Yeah. But that is very different, I agree with you, for, from this, the role of the state, which I think you explained pretty well in Romans 13. How, how would you it's, how would you kind of contextualize or see Paul's action in that case and he didn't just let them let him go out the back door but
0: yeah I think for, for him it, uh, you're not keeping your own laws Rome like yeah. keep keep your word do what you said you're going to do according to your laws and mm-hmm. and we should do that we should keep people to their words mm-hmm. and if we decide we want to forgive a law or, or not press charges that should be up to us, but the the government shouldn't be lax in in what they said they would do and mm-hmm. bearing the sword. So I think that's we have every right. We should be enforcing that. A- in any context, we should be telling people to keep their word, but especially government officials, especially politicians. Yeah, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> no. But uh, yeah, Dan. Yeah, I was just thinking. Oh Tara, to... sorry, after you, Tara, yeah. Go,
1: go
4: for it. Oh this this is quick. Just uh, within what you said there though. He, he, he um, put forth his rights and made them acknowledge what they had done, but he didn't bring charges against them either. I, I can't remember. I thought I heard somewhere that he could have had them even put to death, potentially, for what they did do. Hmm. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. I don't know if that was the full extent, but, you know, he embarrassed them. He didn't actually take their freedom or their money.
0: Yep. And I wonder how much he was also just trying to figure out a way how he could preach the gospel. <laughs> you know, Felix is like, are you even going to, like, Try and make me a Christian in this crazy moment? And he's like, yep, you know. (laughs) It's kind of what I do, yep. uh, Tara, and then Ben, yeah.
8: Um, To speak to the justice and mercy thread, those two words are so often, frequently paired in the Old Testament that it's almost like a a scale where you'll see justice and mercy balancing one another out, which is kind of of interesting. But um, I think, thank you so much. This is a very, like, sticky, murky text to, like, work through and... And I think the conversation just was made as, as we were you know, chatting, so thinking about, like, what is, what is our response to, like, the violence that we see in the world and the violence that maybe that we probably personally encounter often. And I was so struck by, you um, said something about Christ coming as a poor lamb who comes to suffer for and with others. And I just was struck by, like, how, as we encounter violence, how that is also perhaps, like, a fitting response for us to suffer with. For others, and and what that I don't, what that looks like. So I feel like there's a lot more that could be unpacked there. But then that also made me think of the passage in the Garden of Gethsemane when um, when the ear of the uh, Roman soldier gets cut off, and instead of you know retaliating, Jesus puts the ear back on, and where the disciples this whole time like they should be suffering with Jesus, suffering for him as he's like you know weeping in the garden and instead they retaliate and it just sort of
0: reverses that and mm-hmm. anyway, it's lots of great threads but. yeah mm-hmm. yeah, and I, I mean for me, yeah, when you're talking about like justice and mercy, I think of I mean Martin Luther King just how he he was pushing for justice as he should have with we should have equal rights no matter what the color of our skin, but he was doing it in mercy too, I mean he wasn't promoting a vengeance, you know, let's get back for all that has happened to us. So there was an assumed forgiveness in that, an assumed mercy, and, and and a willingness to receive violence, I mean, in his own life numerous times. I mean, that to me, that's one of the best examples in our times of someone who is, is working with both justice and mercy as a Christian. Um, and yeah, that's why we can... Yeah, we're so inspired by him, and he's such a witness for us. Um, But that's a that's a hard. Yeah, I think holding those things, we're not ever like, we don't ever want to fully let go of, of justice or mercy. But um, but sometimes it's murky, (laughs) you know. Like, yeah, it's not always clear. You know, when do we turn the other cheek? When are we supposed to run or what? Yeah, I don't know if that's always clear to us. Someone else had,
11: yeah, I was going to say something that helps me cure, keep it a little clear, and it is very murky, but I work with toddlers and preschoolers, and they are very just. it <laughs> 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 to me, yeah. I'm going to do it to you. Uh-huh. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Yeah. And I think, especially with the younger they are, you have to teach kids you don't just hit them back when they hit you. Give them a kind touch. And you teach the toddler how to give that child a kind touch. And you reprimand the child who hit, but you also teach the one who got hit how to give a kind touch back. And as they as they find out, as you work with them as a mature mature adult, that justice is part of the, the picture. You know, you teach them, okay, you got hit, you don't hit your friends, you know, and you 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 work it out so the two kids come to an understanding. So one gets his justice, and the other one feels badly about doing an injustice. So they, the, re, the the whole concept of justice, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, so to speak, is to some degree solidified. But as the child learns, they begin if as they begin to see that fairness is this and fairness is that, then you can start teaching them about mercy on top of that. You can say, okay, we know what he should do here. But he didn't do it here. What are you going to do about it as they get older? And that that justice, that fairness, acts as a springboard for that child to go beyond fairness, mm-hmm. eye for eye, tooth for tooth, how they're built, so to speak, and learn what, what mercy is. And that's where the adult in their lives can help them do that. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if people go through life fighting battles all the time, saying, that's not fair, that's not fair, it makes me wonder, did they have people in their lives mm-hmm. that were saying... All right, this isn't fair. You've had justice for this up to a certain age. Now you need to get beyond that justice and say, where does mercy come into your life? Yeah. But you got yeah. to somehow have that 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 foundation of fairness first. And I read into teachers who say, who will turn to first graders and say, "Well, life isn't fair." And I kind of laugh at that, but at the same time, I think, yeah, but a first grader needs to know life is fair. So if someone hits you there's got to be a repercussion for that the yeah. child is spoken to and recognizes he's done something wrong so that the fairness is reinforced
0: so yeah, you're going to understand mercy
11: on the basis of, on the basis
0: of justice or right. you won't understand mercy until you first get right. justice I think so yeah, I think so. I get, yeah justice yes. is the foundation Yeah. 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 Oh, yep, I would, I would agree one, and then Ben oh sorry
10: God help us if we get justice right. It's what God doesn't want is that we should get what we deserve. What yeah. sin that sin should, should be paid. Either, either the blood of Christ pays for you or your own blood pays, pays for you. But justice is going to be done, yeah. one way or the other.
0: Yeah. Yep. Go with mercy. I'm with you. <laughs> uh, here and then Ben. Yeah.
8: Um, so as Christians, we're engaged in this, this spiritual battle against evil. And so if we're if we're in a battle and we're trying to resist evil are you saying like showing mercy is our response to resisting evil or like how what are you saying exactly is our way to engage in that battle and to resist evil
0: I mean in some way I would say the whole new testament is about that <laughs> this is this training us as disciples of Christ how to do battle against evil with, uh, external evil and internal evil. So I'd, I don't want to make it sound like the evil is only out there and, and um, in, in a spiritual sense, in a demonic realm. But, but evil's in our own hearts too. And, um, I do, do want to emphasize that. But I, I would think mercy is one of the ways we conquer, we overcome evil with good as Paul says you know we don't take vengeance um, and that that is one of our our weapons so we don't he says don't fight evil with evil so it's I think that's one of the most tempting things is when someone comes at you with uh, with evil and in a particular way the temptation is to come back with the same thing and then you don't get anywhere typically but a Christian picks up a different weapon (laughs) That surprising encounters and and distills the situation, and that's I think mercy is certainly one of those that can, uh, yeah, change the situation. I don't know if that yeah is that answering Ben.
3: Thinking about um, just kind of the foundation for it all, like the call, like you were saying uh, a minute ago about having a foundation of understanding what justice and fairness is. And then, as as a child matures, developing a concept of what mercy might be, and and you know most of us know, grown adults have never developed that right. that sense of what mercy should be. But but it seems to me that for, for the Christian, it's uh, so completely grounded in an awareness that I've been forgiven for my sin by God. Right. And so it's not it's not some random, costly thing that I'm doing. It's something that I know I know I was an enemy of God. I know that my uh, debt has been cancelled. I know that I've been you know, reinstated as a child in God's family. Completely undeserved. Uh, and so that that means I need to approach any conflict or any, any, any situation where someone's wronged me without being able to take the ultimate high moral ground towards that other person. Yeah. Because, uh, because I've been forgiven more than I could possibly have ever imagined or paid for, and, and therefore, that, that like contextualizes whatever wrong is done to me, in a sense. It's like, oh, well, I'm not, by forgiving this person, I'm not doing anything greater than, uh, in fact, I'm doing much less than, than what Jesus has already done for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I, I don't, I know all there may be other, not sort of non-religious motivations for why showing mercy to people are, is 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 good for society or maybe good psychologically for me. Maybe you know there's all kinds of research on how good forgiveness is psychologically <laughs> uh, for us. Uh, it makes for healthier people and all these good things. Um, but it seems to me like the like doctrine of the atonement and a belief in Jesus' death for me is is, is the the ultimate thing that empowers us to actually do this you know yeah. to not exercise vengeance on somebody else but to be able to say that you know the vengeance of the Lord's, you know um, I've been I've been forgiven. I, I have no right to I'm not holy enough to 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 visit re- vengeance on this person yeah um,
0: yeah. yeah forgive as you as you have been forgiven yeah. and I wonder I sometimes maybe I think I see in people who are very unforgiving Typically, there's a correlation into their lack of understanding of being forgiven by yes. God, mm-hmm. yes. and the greater you have a sense of being forgiven, the more you have an ability to forgive. And I think so. I, yeah, it can go both ways, mm-hmm. but um, but that's yeah. Sometimes that's a sign of, of someone just not having that sense for themselves. I think we have to
6: distinguish between sin and sinner, because we can forgive uh, those people who did bad to you, like it, it's really hurted you, right? Because you can forgive those people but like what he did to you, someone killed you, something like, or maybe stolen something, or maybe raped you, or maybe monstered, like, all those things he needed to be that because of the sin, they the justice, right? Mm-hmm. So we yeah. can forgive those people but they still because of that, what they did to you or did to the society, justice. So it doesn't mean like, since I forgive you, you just go freely. Yeah, just like right. a dog, right? Because that dog might bite or do something to another person. Or, you know, did you see what I mean? Yeah. So is it mercy and uh, forgiveness is the same thing what you're talking about? Is it, is it different, slightly? Or?
0: I would say slightly different. I mean, I think they're in the same kind of camp. <laughs> uh, but Forgiveness is forgiving a debt, forgiving a, an actual wrong. Showing mercy, I think, could be more broad. And mm-hmm. uh, like when G, when people come to Jesus, have mercy on me. You know, it's not they're not asking Jesus to forgive them necessarily, but mm-hmm. you know, heal my daughter. Have mercy.
9: Um,
0: and so forgiveness is something else. And I think it's good to to say there's different uh, kinds of forgiveness. Like. Trivial things you can forgive quite easily and quickly. If you've gone through a traumatic thing,
9: you,
0: you can't always just quickly forgive. You might have to enter a, a process of forgiveness. You know, you might have to work with somebody as to, what would that look like? Um, that's not, you know... Uh, Dick, you got some thoughts on that? You know, yeah. Just,
2: yeah, it, it raises problems as well with forgiveness. Where you forgive someone who, in... Sinning against you has also broken the law.
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: That's going to happen all the time. And, and I think you've got two things going on. I think we, we're required to forgive, yes. but we're not necessarily required to not press charges. <laughs> mm-hmm. so I mentioned an example in, in London. People in our church seem to want to steal my guitar. Worst, seemed, time. several times. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, uh, it depended on who'd taken it <laughs> so and what their situation was. One time, I it was a guy living with us, and uh, we forgave him and had to come back and stay with us. Um, and I didn't raise a legal thing at all. Another time, it was someone who wasn't staying with us who was on a... He was high on drugs and in, in our... In a trajectory that was really very dangerous for him and everybody else and I did press charges and he spent a couple of days inside so I'm not sure that it helped him but it was at least an attempt to slow him down and so uh, that, that's the kind of thing I didn't think that was wrong to press charges and have the police brought in because it was really for his sake that I could forgive both of them and, and so I think it's a, but the, there's complicated things going all the time there
5: we wrestled a lot difficult. with
0: that yeah. you know, whether, mm-hmm. whether it was the right thing matters. Yeah, we had um, a friend who was a judge. Uh, he died in the last few years from cancer, but I asked him this. I was like, how, you know, as a judge and as a Christian, <laughs> like, just, I would find the, I would be very conflicted. Like, how do I enforce the law and convict people? Um, I'd want to be merciful or generous. And he said, well, Actually, the people who come into my court, a lot of times this is the first time they've been held accountable for what they've done. And so I see my judgment, my sentence as a mercy to them because now this might, this could wake them up. And, and then a lot of times he would actually come alongside some of these people and help them uh, even in their sentence, in their hard sentences. And there was a lady who was, who came to the funeral who was one of these ladies, uh, who was in his court and I guess he had sentenced, but then he had come alongside her and helped her, and she eventually became a lawyer. And it was just this beautiful story of this lady who, and I think became a Christian as well. But, um, yeah, it, how, what does mercy look like? I mean, yeah, it might not always be straightforward. And it might mean ha- having something, somebody held accountable for what they've done, to say, what you do matters, <laughs> and there are consequences. and And you need to learn that somehow if you haven't. Ben?
3: Okay. It's not to mention just the fact that so, for someone in the position of a, of a judge or, you know, you're not just, it's not just between you and the person that's done something wrong. It's, it's, you know, a lot of people are sentenced to prison terms and it's a mercy to the, the people who they've been hurting. <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, actually, the, if you're in this position of authority to show, to show mercy to an individual might mean Consigning other people to continue misery, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's not—it's not a perfect. You're not in a vacuum, you know. Um, but I just wonder. One, one question I have is just—it seems to me so much of the distinction there between, you know, turn the other cheek, but that it's important for there to be justice in society. Uh, has to do with my own uh, desire to seek uh, fairness for myself and not be humiliated. And not, you know, in all the things, like turning it the cheek, like you were saying, the backhand slap, it's, it's less about getting beat up in the street, it's more about being publicly humiliated. Mm-hmm. And, and am, I, am I going to sort of stand up for my image and my reputation by smacking someone back? Um, to me, I don't know, I may be totally wrong about this, but it seems to me it's, it's much easier to argue for mercy when it comes to me just defending myself and my interests. Like it's you know, we that's what a Christian is, is really supposed to be willing to let that go, right? Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to be light on criminal justice, you know, <laughs> which is for the good of society and for the and for the and really is something that ultimately should be loving to the to the vulnerable in society. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it comes to my own you know, ego getting getting bruised, that that's where I really need to be like, I'm not. I'm not gonna lash back, you know, because it's. Um, I no, I have no, no right to do that under yeah. Masks, I guess so. um, Yeah. Yeah. The question is: Do you personally is, is there is there ever right to personally stand up for justice to, you know, for me, myself, and I only? You know. <laughs> I don't. Know.
0: Yeah, sometimes. I would think sometimes. Yeah, yeah. maybe depending yeah. on the situation, but. Uh, but that there's, yeah, there's times to affirm your rights. And then there's times to lay down your legitimate rights for the sake of another person. And I think a lot, yeah, I think a lot of what Jesus says. I don't think he says it, you should always and only sacrifice. Um, that it's better to obey than sacrifice. And so it's sometimes obedience means laying down your rights. And sometimes, like Paul, it means affirming your rights as a citizen. And um, And so... Yeah, I don't. I don't always know when when those different things play out. But
4: I'm just wondering if maybe we should sometimes be a little bit more careful with how we forgive or the spirit in which we forgive. I was reading something some uh, recently where someone was talking about how Christians were offering forgiveness and declaring certain people forgiven. Um, some Nazis who had done some horrible things during World War II, and when some Jewish people who were victims of that found out how easy the forgiveness was, they were greatly offended mm-hmm. at that. They were very, very the, the forgiveness and mercy of the Christians were extended to the Nazis. They didn't see that as a good thing. They saw that as a horrible thing, and it Turn them off to Christianity more. Mm-hmm. So, I think we just need to be a little bit more thoughtful in it, and sometimes give place to the proper, give, give credit to the proper place of justice sometimes. Some, yeah. Because there's more than just me involved. Mm-hmm. There's more than there's more than one party sometimes involved. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the victim needs needs justice, and it's not like we're being unrighteous to. We're not like we're going against Jesus to offer
0: that. You know, sometimes. Yeah, I mean that gets complicated. Yeah, you're. Yeah, it's a very complicated situation when it involves other people, and uh, and maybe what needs to happen for their sake to these people, like to have to pronounce forgiveness in one way towards somebody doesn't mean that that um, that those people have forgiven this person, and there's it's, there's multiple angles I think to it. But I do think it would be you know, it's that's why it's important to emphasize the cross where justice and mercy kiss, as has been has been said. And so this is it, the cross isn't about God not caring about sin and um, but it's his you know the cross is his ultimate no against all sin and all that's wrong. And at the same time his yes towards the sinner who he wants to love and forgive. And so I I think that should be that can be should be the biggest safeguard in, um, in how we pronounce forgiveness. We're not doing it apart from the justice of the cross that has happened, and and maybe that's not being heard enough or or, or communicated enough. But yeah, I mean, even Jesus, you know, he's like, make sure you're forgiven, he's, and then he says, because you know, go and, and make things right with people because. Somehow it's going to get accounted for later. <laughs> you know, this, this interesting thing. So where it, it could be like God forgives you, but you might have to deal with somebody else on another level <laughs> mm-hmm. with their forgiveness or unforgiveness. So I think that's important to recognize. God might forgive us, but we might have to work out forgiveness with another person. Uh, um, that's another, another relationship we have to work with. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness with God doesn't mean... Oh, now I don't have to worry about all the people I've wronged and maybe try to make restitution. That was, I mean, when I became a Christian, I had a lot of people I had to go to <laughs> and ask for forgiveness for, for all kinds of things. And that was really hard. And, and some people didn't want to. And I had to accept that. But then the people I did, it was a powerful thing in my life and their life too. Um, but I think we need to emphasize. That more too with people, uh, go and make things right as much as possible. You know, that's not always possible, but I think some. In the front <laughs> um,
12: your example of the kind of forgiving the Nazis, I it think it's important to remember that we, in the pursuit of mercy, we can't cheapen justice, and that's kind of what was happening there. Because God doesn't cheapen justice when He forgives us; He has a generous justice. But He accepted the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, and so. When things like that happen, it cheapens the whole process. Um, Austin Channing Brown, in her book about race relations in America, talks about how we are always talking about wanting to move on to reconciliation. She says, how is that possible if justice hasn't actually been metered out? It cheapens reconciliation if we breeze past justice. Yeah. And, um, And recognizing that forgiveness and mercy doesn't necessarily mean that reconciliation is fully possible. There can yeah. be forgiveness, but it doesn't mean that relationship is fully restored because there are consequences and walls can be torn down, that can't be rebuilt. Um, so, you know, there's things I've had, like, you know, in an abusive marriage, like, you can forgive that person, but it doesn't mean you necessarily move back in with them. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Well said. There was a hand over here. Yeah. It's interesting that you
12: mentioned kind of when we the a going back chance
0: to uh, ask for forgiveness? How did you deal with kind of those who said no? Um, well, I, yeah, I, in some ways I expected some people to say no, but it was still hard and, uh, and sad, but I was also like, they have every right to be mad at me and not to, uh, forgiveness is a real gift to me, mm-hmm. so. That's how I felt for the most part. I was, it was few people who weren't uh, willing to forgive me. and uh, I mean, mostly it was stuff they didn't even know about. I, would, I stole a lot before I was a Christian, and so I had to go back to these people and tell them I had taken stuff from them or done stuff to their property or whatever that they didn't even know that it was me. So first they had to deal with the shock that here's this person who's like telling me the stuff they've done, to me, were stolen from me, and they're asking me to forgive them. Is this a joke? Was you know, it was you know. Sometimes it took a while to actually get past like this is a real thing. I'm not just playing a game, and um, so that was yeah, that was all hard. But mostly it was people were quite generous and willing to forgive. I was quite surprised. It was yeah, I could count on probably one hand the number who, who were like, no way, get the hell out of here. <laughs> okay. Someone over here, Marty. Marty.
5: Well, just on, on that, if, if Paul somewhere, I don't know if you remember where, said, made this this comment insofar as it's possible with you, be at peace with all people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you you had done your side. You had done what was possible for you, which was to go and confess. Mm-hmm. And um, those who weren't, I mean, the the the, the goal is usually rec- the highest goal is personal reconciliation well that doesn't always happen but you had done all that was possible from your side Mm -hmm. so then I think one just does have to leave it with God and say well Lord I know you've forgiven me Mm -hmm. even if this person Mm -hmm. hasn't Um, but I was thinking back of something that Mm -hmm. over there raised just thinking of um, the situation actually right now in the news one hears about presidents of our country have the right to acquit people Mm -hmm. who have committed serious crimes yeah and have made mockery of justice. And that's a possibility right now that President Trump may let off Roger Stone, who's who's been been, I think, sentenced to something a few years in prison, but he could have been, been sentenced to way more. Yeah. And and a lot of what he did was in service of Trump. And that to me is really bad because it makes mockery of the justice system. Yeah. And you think the prisons are full of people who shouldn't even be there because of because they were because of police officers who who um, who set them up because of whatever, or they were just wrongly convicted, but they don't have money, and they don't have power, and they don't have the president of the United States on their side. And I don't know. I just feel quite strongly about about that 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 um, that a president shouldn't have the right to make mockery of the justice system when someone has been been clearly convicted of serious crimes and should suffer the consequences.
0: Yeah. I'm in in full agreement.
11: (laughs) I was going to say, also referring to what the gentleman behind us said. um, um, I think when you go into situations and if you're caught unawares, it's normal to react. So I guess something, you know, one of the verses was saying, we're not fighting against, um, we're fighting against principalities and we're fighting against unseen things, the evil of this world not necessarily the person who's, who's doing the evil. And so there's a part of me that says, you know, we need to have that wisdom to be able to look at the situation we're in and what happened, and to really know, and that's hard to do, but if we're praying for it, have the wisdom to know who the enemy really is. You know? Mm-hmm. Not, not the deliverer, necessarily, of the evil, but the enemy himself. And um, I guess there's a part of me that... Again, fight the evil and not the evil purveyor. So to speak, yeah. you know. And that takes a lot of wisdom on our part. You know, you can't just react eye for eye. You've got to be able to see with your, with your wisdom, your yep. spiritual wisdom, that what is the problem here?
0: Yeah.
10: Yep. That that becomes a matter of faith too. That will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yeah. Just Justice is going to be done. Even though we perceive all kinds of injustice and we don't care, of those sorts of things, but is God capable of really making real justice in the end somehow? That's a matter of our faith, yeah. just like salvation. You know?
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm counting on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe one more? I would
7: just like to comment about the dog. <laughs> 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 Please um, I think that I've heard my parents say that you know this was a long time ago. They would maybe approach it quite differently now and and would have nothing against pressing charges or trying to get the dog put down, but they would say with you know they were both new Christians and they were just trying to live out something mm-hmm. of what they knew they were supposed to do. And felt like uh, God was with them in that, even if yeah, it wasn't yeah, a, yeah. you know, something of an immature decision. Yeah, or something yeah. they were trying to trust exactly what this gentleman just said. Like, Can't the ruler of all the earth deal with this dog? Apparently <laughs> 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 I remember.
0: Yeah, my, uh, I was. Uh, you got to be careful what you pray for too, because God could hear. Because I remember when I was at uh, first a Christian again, and I had a friend I was praying for uh, to become a Christian. And it didn't seem like things were working, and I came to my brother, I was like, how, how should I pray for my friend? And he was like, well, <laughs> he was new too, and he said, like, you should start praying that bad things happen to him, so that, like, he'll call it to God and stuff. And I was like, really? And I was like, okay. And so I started praying that, and then the next time I met him, I was like, hey, Miro, how's it going? He's like, you wouldn't believe it. So oh, many no. bad things are happening to me. <laughs> And I was like, oh no, that was my fault. I, God heard my prayers. And then I felt so bad, I, I told him what happened. <laughs> I'm sorry I was praying for you. And this is what I prayed. And he was like, what?
9: And I probably shouldn't have
0: said that either. But actually, it opened up a really interesting conversation. But yeah, be careful. I have a tell story, too. Um, because it was really
5: fun. It was just a few years ago here. Um, I was picking up a babysitter... To bring her to to be with Ben and Nikki's kids when they were too young to leave alone, so Ben and Nikki could come to the lecture. And um, I went to the house, and and the dog, uh, the girl was not right there. She should have been, but she was upstairs or something. And their dog came and bit me, bit right through my jacket, and, and it was really scary. I mean, I he didn't break my skin, but he, he he bit right through a denim jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I brought her to bed and he said, and I know that I know the owners. It never occurred to me to sue them. I never really, I don't think about suing people. But I did tell them, you know, and they were horrified. And their dog had been a bit erratic and everything, and they did end up putting the dog down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me to sue anybody, and I was not nearly—I wasn't near, not nearly killed. I wasn't a child who <laughs> was nearly killed. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that. It hasn't left you with a fear of all dogs because you have a well, you have a lovely dog, but it does leave that sort of thing does leave some.
7: Well, for about twenty people. years, I couldn't be near any dog. Really? So, oh, I can. Yeah. Imagine. It was a long,
0: long all right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, how's it going? See you, see you.